you are here. That's New Mexico State. Uh, if you do that. Um, all right, let me tell you a little bit about REI. REI exists for the convinced and the unconvinced, for the believer and the unbeliever, for the commuter and the dorm dweller, for the student who has embraced all things pumpkin spice, <laughs> and the student who despises all fall festivities and flavors. <laughs> yeah. And REI exists for those who have bought into Jesus and those who are just looking when it comes to Christianity. In other words, whoever you are, wherever you are, you're welcome here. We hope, as REF, we get to know you, and we hope you get to know REF. Um, and this means if you've been around REF for a while, this is not your first time, try to meet someone new afterwards, not right now. And if you, this is your first time, just try to meet someone. <laughs> okay? So, I hope that happens afterwards, and I'll already plug it, International Lights is an internationally delightful way to do that, okay? So, come on and see that. Um, we don't have our normal sign-up, my bad, but we do have a couple sign-ups for intramurals and for intramural soccer. Is this still on? You okay. getting feedback? I was getting feedback, yeah. You know, not... Not necessarily you're doing great, but, um, okay. Great. <laughs> so, uh, as those signs are going around, keep state graded for intramural soccer. Um, take a moment to sign those up, or sign yourself up if you're interested. Um, the other thing I would say is a good way to get to know more about our UAP is to take the next step. We appreciate you being here. This is awesome. Uh, this is what we call the front door of our UAP. We I think it's going to, I hope it's worth your while. With some wonderful music. Hopefully, this will be a nice time as well. Um, but maybe take an next step and go to a Bible study or a lunch or a dinner. Uh, I especially recommend Bible study in the sense that what we're trying to do with Bible study is uh, we believe that in community enhances Bible study and Bible study enhances community. And so that's a great way to kind of get to know each other. Uh, and I hope that you check that out. And we did highlight one Bible study. We're trying because we have a lot of Bible study to highlight one, a different one each week. So maybe if you're free on Monday, check out Isaac um, with his wife, Ashley. Okay. Um, last thing, I'm hosting a new student dinner, uh, so it's Tier in the back of the green, um, on Monday. And look, if you're new to REOC, if you're new to NMSU, uh, you just like food, um, home-cooked meals, this is your chance to come to my house and hang out. Um, this is your time, your chance, your home-cooked meal. Don't miss it. So, please come. We'd love to have you. All right, announcements out of the way. Let's chat, okay? This semester in large group, we've been studying, large group is what we're doing here. We've been studying the lives of Elijah and Jonah, okay? I'm calling this semester Tracing the Heart of God. Looking at the lives of of Jonah and Elijah, there are two things that we kind of come to realize very quickly. Some of you have heard this before. Um, there's a lot of us in them, and a lot of them in us. And what that means is don't let the Old Testament prophet outside fool you. Okay? There's a lot of similarities inside between us and Elijah and Jonah. And also, Jonah and Elijah's stories highlight the story of the God. And I think we learn, by studying the lives of Elijah, a lot more about the living God than we do about the lives of Elijah or Jonah. So that's what we're up to. Um, and in particular tonight, we're continuing a discussion of Jonah, as told in the book of Jonah. And I think this is the seventh installment. Um, there will be eight. Okay, so you're very close 
to the end here. Okay? If you've been with us or you're like me, you need constant refreshing, let me offer you a word for word, well, not really, paraphrase <laughs> of the book of Jonah thus far. Um, and this is going to be a little more artsy, uh, so maybe this will feel like an English class, I'm sorry, um, if that's not your thing. But look, we're in chapter 4 of the book of Jonah, and I think it's helpful to reflect back in different chapters. Chapter 1, Jonah flew from the face of God in anger, or in a hurry. In our passage tonight, Jonah flies into the face of God in a rage. So he flew from God in a hurry, and now he's flying towards God in a rage. Chapter 2, God praises, or Jonah praises God for his deliverance from death. Chapter 4, our passage tonight, we see Jonah is actually uh, scolding God for the Ninevites' deliverance from death. Okay. Finally, we see in chapter 3, Jonah stands in the city with the Ninevites and loves them. Here we see Jonah sitting outside of the city and hating the Ninevites. So that's sort of a, a big, broad picture of what's been going on. And with all these contrasts and changes in mind, uh, would you open your Bible to Jonah chapter 4? It's after Obadiah, before Micah, and the Minor Prophets. Or uh, open your handy-dandy bulletin inside. Right? I think. Okay, so would you stand for the reading of Scripture? So Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Friends, the heavens and earth will pass away before one letter, one letter of the word of God becomes void. Let's pray. Father, um, we need you uh, right now in this time to make it um, meaningful, that we would understand your words that you're trying to speak to us, that you would move your spirit to fill us, to anoint this time, to separate it. Uh, Help us not to separate our lives from this time, but Lord, I pray that your word would pour in and through in every nook and cranny of our lives, and it would inform the way that we live, and it would change us. That's our prayer, Lord, that we wouldn't be the same after hearing your word and your word explained, that this would be a time where we really sat back and looked at our lives in an honest way, Um, as hard and as beautiful and as easy and maybe as ugly as that is, Lord. And I pray that you would help us, guide us in this darkness, help us to trace your heart. We ask these things in your Spirit's name, in your Son's name, and in the Father's name. Amen. You can be seated. All right, I'm going to move away from this. I still feel feedback, but all right, that'll be good. So I had this moment this summer where I began to think maybe I should lose some weight. Okay? Honestly. I passed by the mirror in a towel, and I shuddered at myself. Okay? It was one of those moments where you don't have the time to fix the lighting or get your good side. 
or stuck in your gut, okay? There I was in my half-naked glory, okay? And friends, I was ashamed. <laughs> so this moment in the mirror had some incredible impact on my life, one of which resulted in me trying a drink called Diet Dr. Pepper. Okay? I've been known to drink some soda in my day, okay? Every lunch, it's such an impossible deal to turn down the combo, right? You know, you get a drink, chips, and your sandwich. I mean, how am I supposed to let go of the, of the soda? Anyway, it's such a deal, I can't let go. Um, so I decided to, to, to deny myself my regular soda staple, which is Dr. Pepper, okay? Uh, it's a PhD in taste, that's all I have to say, okay? So, and I really decided, okay, I'm gonna let go of, diet, of Dr. Pepper for it's a diet friend. It's a diet brother, it's a diet sister in soda. That is the diet Dr. Pepper, okay? So, <laughs> I decided this summer to try to do that. Uh, I started regularly drinking Diet Dr. Pepper when the, when the opportunity happened. When it availed itself, I decided to drink some Diet Dr. Pepper. Um, and you know, despite some clever commercials and a few Jedi mind tricks that I tried on myself, I'm just gonna tell you this plain and simple. Diet Dr. Pepper tastes nothing, nothing, nothing like regular Dr. Pepper, <laughs> okay? And I just want you to know, like, before we go into the, the details of me drink, drinking Diet Dr. Pepper, which is so important, um, I, want, I want you to know this, that it's not like I hadn't thought about trying a diet drink before, but there was this inner part of me, like this inner red-blooded male part of me, that wanted nothing to do with the diet, okay? And the word diet really got in the way for me. I can drink Coke Zero all day, but diet, Dr. Pepper, that's hard for me, okay? So, anyway, I was sacrificing taste, but I thought, okay, this is a sacrifice worth uh, making. You know, my half-naked glory needs to feel less shameful. So, uh, but then, in the middle of this trial, I had this extremely honest moment. I went to lunch after church on a Sunday in El Paso, okay? And we went, it was my family and I, my kids, my twins, William and Carol, and Tier, and a few RUF friends and alumni, okay? So people that had been in RUF in the past and graduated, we all went to this Mexican place down in El Paso. And I was sitting there, sipping on my Diet Dr. Pepper, my new habits, um, as I was wont to do. And there I was with my kids, my, these former students, a Diet Dr. Pepper in my hands. And all of a sudden, our food arrived. Okay? And I took note of what everyone else got. You know, a side order of nachos, a quesadilla, a taco or two. But then, all of a sudden, there was my order. <laughs> my order was like the equivalent of the Mexican Grand Slam. <laughs> so here, I don't remember what it's called. I wish I did. Then I'd really be able to help you. Some sort of combination plate that basically included like this half of the menu. <laughs> Flautas, enchiladas, tacos, burritos, chips, just in case. Um, and literally, like, there was more than one plate, and all of the plates took up, like, half the table. Okay? It was no good. It was no good. Um, but, you know, I really, at the time, thought nothing of it, and ate my fill. I cleaned all of my plates, then I leaned over to Tears' plate, and finished off her chips and guacamole. Uh, meanwhile, drinking my foul-tasting Diet Dr. Pepper. <laughs> And it was 
was then and there, as I was washing down the chips and the guac and the salsa, of someone else's plate after I'd eaten multiple plates, and I was drinking this metallic moment of zero calories, okay, that I realized that there was something very foolish going on. <laughs> the ridiculousness of my life, okay. There I was, and I sadly am, treating a surface detail of my diet, like soda, without looking beneath the real problem, which is, a, which is portion size, clearly. <laughs> okay? And I want, you to, I want you to take this metaphor and extend it. Think about your spiritual lives. Think about our spiritual lives together. There we are, feeling the self-righteous restraint of listening to someone talk about something that bores us to tears. That's how we're feeling, deep down inside, okay? And we're saying, oh, I'm so great, zero calories, metallic taste. Meanwhile, do we dare to look beneath the surface of our listening and think about our heart? That our hearts are all wrong. Why, after all, are we not thrilled with this person that is fearfully and wonderfully made? Why is it that he, this person doesn't soul stir in us, doesn't incredibly evoke curiosity, doesn't make us just in wonder of the soul-stirring combination of feelings and intellect and interest? Why is it that she or he, with their beautifully unique history of struggles and defeat and victory and love, doesn't just compel us to listen and love more? Or consider the story of Jonah for a moment. So we've thought about ourselves listening, but then we've looked deeper in our hearts. But think about the story of Jonah for a second, okay? He's no longer running away from God. Problem fixed, right? There he is. He's done. Case solved. No, obviously not. Jonah has to look at and wrestle with the problems beneath his running away. His anger at God. His anger at God. Jonah's anger is why he runs away from God and God's mission of love. That's what he says in verse 2. Jonah's anger is the sin beneath the sin of running away. So like Jonah, we are called to look at our hearts. We are called to ask why we do what we do. And to look at the sin beneath the sin. This is a high and holy calling for everyone in this room. Okay? This is a high and holy calling whether you're a Christian or you call yourself a Christian or you don't call yourself a Christian whether you're listening right now or whether you're speaking right now. For all of us, this is a high and holy calling. This encourages us to venture into an uncomfortable space, a space that feels like anger and looks like doubt. In our passage tonight, chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, we see Jonah wrestle out loud with his anger and his doubts about God. And this passage ends with God asking a simple but direct question. Do you do well to be angry, Jonah? Is it right, is it good for you to be angry, Jonah? In our passage tonight, in this exchange, in verses 1 through 4, we're taught a simple truth. And I'm going to say this a couple times. We can honestly search our anger and gaze upon God's goodness, because Jesus has shown us what goodness truly means. We can honestly search our anger and gaze upon God's goodness because Jesus has shown us what goodness truly means. Okay? I know it's complicated, but basically all it's saying is Jesus has shown us the character of God. And therefore, we can search our own character and the character of God and his goodness. 
and trust that it is good because of Jesus. So let me talk about this passage briefly, as is the custom. This passage investigates our anger and proclaims God's compassion. First, we see our self-righteous anger in Jonah, in verses 1 through 3. Okay? Then, and secondly, in verses 2 and 4 mostly, we see God's selfless compassion. So verses 1 through 3, we see an anger that thinks I'm right. An anger that thinks I'm right. Verses 2 and 4, we see a compassion that is right. It's a compassion that is right. Okay? So let's begin where the passage begins in verse 1. An anger that thinks we're right. Verse 1 reads, But it, that is Nineveh's survival, okay, displeased Jonah exceedingly. That is, in a more literal translation, it was evil to Jonah with a great evil. That's literally what the Hebrew says of the original passage. It was evil to Jonah with a great evil. And Jonah was angry. Let me break this down for you. There's two thoughts here. Okay? First, we're where the spiritual sidewalk ends. That's where we are. This is where the spiritual sidewalk ends. The second thought is, what is anger? What is anger? Okay? So, friends, chapter 4 is where the spiritual sidewalk ends. Okay? I, I'm borrowing from someone, if you can't figure that out. A children's author, poet, perhaps. Okay. Um, and really, it's actually fitting, because this is where all of the child book, all the children's book versions of Jonah stop. I don't know if you've read one recently. They never get past the Ninevites rejoicing and, and Nineveh not being res- destroyed. Okay? Look at nearly every children's Bible. This is the end we think that this book should have, right? This is the book we think we should think it should end in a victory. It should end in repentance and salvation of all Nineveh. And then, all of a sudden, curtain closed, climax done, happy ending that we're looking for. And the reality, though, is that Jonah doesn't work this way. We all want this story, like World War II, that ends with V-Day, with Victory Day. But actually, World War II ends with the Cold War. Okay. So here we are. Life. Real life. That's not what we get. We don't get what we want. We don't get the children's book version of the Bible. We get the Bible itself. Um, we get a person who has these amazing moments of repentance in a storm, of deliverance in a fish, and of obedience in Nineveh. Okay? All these moments, the same man who experiences all these things has a meltdown. An absolute kicking, screaming, hissy fit meltdown in front of God, in front of everyone else in the history of humankind. <laughs> okay? Based on this Bible. Okay? Um, he's ticked at God, he hates life, and he complains that God is God and God is compassionate and merciful. Do we see sort of how frustrating this is? How messy this is? This is a spiritual mess. This is spiritually messy. This is unpaved territory for our understanding of spirituality. This is why the spiritual sidewalk ends here. And this is where we all live, like it or not. And this is what the Bible describes life is like, like it or not. And here we are. We want a Jonah who has a clear conversion moment, who cleans up his act and acts right and does good to everyone all the time. That's what we want. But Jonah's great mission moment is totally tainted. He does good with the wrong heart, and then God goes and saves Nineveh anyway. This is totally confusing. And just so you know, a mission trip, a weekly evangelism, won't cure you either. It won't cure you either. 
good deeds don't wipe out our bad deeds. That's just the way it is. It's not like you can eat salad after funnel cake, and all of a sudden the funnel cake's grease and salt and sugar all of a sudden dissipates in the middle of the lettuce. Okay, that's just not how it works. Okay, that's not how spirituality works either. Missions work doesn't cure Jonah, it doesn't cure us. And sometimes it makes us worse, not better. Now again, it's a good thing, but don't use a good thing for a bad end. Everything in us is, is, wants to do this. We all, along with a lot of commentators of Jonah, want to say, he never actually, he never actually um, was saved. He never was saved. Okay. We want to say he had a false conversion. All the rest of it was just a bunch of fakery. After all, how can someone claim to love God and then hate the way that God loves? <clears throat> but if you're confused about how missions doesn't save us and how this guy might, may or may not be a fake, there's hope. Okay. And I think it comes from a guy named Tullian Chavidian. And Tolkien Shabidian rightly reminds us that the gospel is this. The good news of Christianity, the central message of Christianity is this. Okay? The power of God for salvation. The gospel is the power of God for salvation, not the power of God for conversion. Okay? What does he mean by that? What he means is this. Jonah has to be saved. Okay? He's been saved, but he has to still be saved. He continues to have to be saved. He's been saved, but he continues to have to be saved. Okay? For those of you who believe in Jesus here, you and I, we still need to be saved. We need to constantly be rescued inside and out every day and all of the time. Do we get that? That's messy. But that's where what we're learning from this passage. That's what it means that the power of God for salvation, and not just a one-time act, we're not finished masterpieces for works in progress. We were, drowned, we were drowning. God pulled us up in his lifeboat. But we still have to get safely to shore. Do you see that? We're not at shore yet. Salvation belongs to the Lord, but it's not a hit and run. It's not a one-night stand kind of thing. That's what we want it to be. <laughs> but it's not. The truth is that God's salvation is ongoing. And at this very moment, working and those who believe. And the truth gives us permission to look honestly past the misbehaviors we can't fix and look into the deep and murky waters of our hearts. We have that permission because we can't fix ourselves and we need Jesus' rescue all the time. And so we have the permission to look behind our unkind words to and about our roommates. We have the permission to look behind the way we look past uncool people all the time or look through them. We have permission to look at the way that we eat too much or we eat too little. We have permission to look behind all of these behaviors and look at the heart attitude that throbs at the center of us. It's there we must press, and that's there that verses 1 through 3 for us. In verses 1 through 3, we see the temperature of Jonah's heart. It's hot. So hot. Okay? Scalding hot. He's angry, and he's not, in, he's not angry in the sort of like righteous Jesus throwing over the tables of the money changers in the temple sort of way. Okay? He's not angry in that sort of way. He's angry with God, even though he thinks he's angry for God. He's angry with God, even though he thinks he's angry for God. 
And this is helpful for us as we step back and try to apply this to ourselves. When we feel angry, we often think we're angry for God, but oftentimes we're angry with God. When we feel angry, we feel angry over what we, when we don't get our own way, and when things don't work out the way we think they should work out. And really why I'm trying to apply this to us is that I think at the heart of it, many, many, many of us, if not most of us here, struggle with anger. If we're honest. Maybe right not right now. Maybe a few days ago. Maybe you think it's thoroughly in the past, but I'm sure it'll come up again. Maybe you think it's in the future, but I'm sure it will be there too. So let me explain what I mean by most of a struggle with anger. Okay? And I want, I want you to understand how surprising this is. Okay? So I have this guy in Keith who's like an area coordinator for RUF. The area coordinator basically is like a boss. But he's more than a boss. He's sort of also like a pastor. A pastor to me who tries to pastor, okay? Uh, it's complicated. <laughs> anyway, um, he comes and visits like once a semester. We usually just eat a lot because that's what I do, right? So, um, anyway, so we go out to eat a bunch, okay? And really what he does is he takes me out to eat and we talk about how the ministry is going, okay? How's our youth going? What's going on? He asks me all these sort of deep and insightful questions. And I really kind of just tell stories about the ministry. And um, anyway, so this last spring he came and we were walking around the SIA, kind of near the plaza near the Catholic Church, okay? So you got the, the visual picture. Um, and we were sort of walking around talking about RUF and that semester and, and how I felt about things. And can I just be honest for a second? I, I, there, sure, there were some swell stories of what God was doing. But a lot of this was just me complaining. Complaining about like what God wasn't doing, what people weren't doing, how things were falling apart, how I felt so out of control and so ridiculous. Um, and it was somewhere in the middle of this tirade that Keith sort of like paused and pulled up. And so I stopped. You know what he said? He said, he has this incredible thick southern drawl, which I will not attempt. <laughs> he lived in Louisiana for many years of his life. I can't possibly mimic it. But he basically said this. Sid, you're an angry man, aren't you? You're an angry, angry man. And you know, when I, when I heard that, I thought, really? Are you kidding me? And then I was sort of like shocked, and then I was disappointed and frustrated, and then I was angry. <laughs> so I shut up and didn't say anything. And it was only later after he left that I kind of thought about what he had said and thought about what I was saying about what, you know, what things, how things and where things weren't working, how people weren't doing the things I expected them to do, or how my agenda for one and how our young should work was not working due to human sin and God's grace. And I thought about all of these things, and I realized that they made me very, very angry. Extremely angry. And that I was an angry, angry man, just like he had said. Look, I don't share this story because I'm proud of it. This isn't like a merit brad, a merit badge on the pastoral uh, vest of, of you know, scouting or something, okay? This isn't like, this isn't sort of something I'm proud of. I'm just saying this so that we can have an honest conversation. That we are we get angry sometimes. We're angry maybe now. And I'm not saying that's not a sin, I'm just saying that's what's happening. And I'm asking you to peek underneath the hot hood of your heart and to take the temperature of the engine that's ticking away inside of you. 
Okay? I'm not saying that we go around stomping and frowning and punching walls and throwing objects, although some of us, most of us have been there before. Okay? I'm just saying that anger happens and some of us are smoldering and some of us are scalding hot and burning bright. Some of you right now are angry at me for talking about anger or for other things. Some of you are angry at each other, maybe for the things that the other person has completely forgotten. And some of us, others of us, are angry at ourselves, just totally disappointed and frustrated. And behind all of this anger, some, if not many, if not most of us, are angry at God. The why, the root of much of our anger is spiritual frustration. And that's where Jonah was, and that's where I consistently find myself. Look at verse 2 with me. This is where Jonah explains the object of his anger in explicit detail. Okay? This is what he says. I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Jonah is ticked at God, and he's ticked at God's mercy, and he's ticked at God's compassion. He's not mad that he was saved. He's mad that Nineveh, in chapter 3, verse 10, was saved. Nineveh, Nineveh of all places, Nineveh, his enemy, Nineveh, the once and future conquerors of Jonah's homeland, Israel. Nineveh, the same people who skin folks alive, burn women and children alive, and take fingers, noses, and toes as trophies for war. Nineveh, of all places. And wasn't it for Jonah? Jonah, there he is. He spit out of a whale and he hustles across the desert to Nineveh. There he is hustling night and day and does everything to the wardens of the letter that God tells him to do in Nineveh. And for what? For what? For a merciless people to never learn to be better. Jonah is embarrassed for God. What a dupe. What a dupe. God gave them everything. Everything they wanted. Up front and for nothing. For Jonah and many of us who feel like we have to hustle to love people and hustle to minister to people, God's ways feel unjust and foolish. Everyone thinks that God, that per, the person who never talks to awkward people is just so loving. Everyone thinks that the guy who hurts black girls left and right is just such a great guy. She never shows up when I ask her to come. And then, I always show up when she asks me to come. Here's one closer to home for me. That ministry does whatever is easiest. Whatever is easiest, whatever they know will fill a place, and yet people continue to come and continue to fill a place. And frankly, as verse 3 puts it so well, it all just makes us want to quit the whole church Jesus thing. Okay? The whole, what's the point, we ask, if I do so much and do so little, and that person over there does so little and gets so much? What's the point? It's like my friend Ross growing up. Everyone has a friend like this. Every time he plays sports, okay, if things don't go well for him, he takes the ball and goes home. Okay? 
right? Like, literally, the game would not be going his way. He would cry, foul, foul. And he'd be like, why aren't you calling that? This game is rigged. It's not fair. And he would take the basketball or take the football, and he would go home. Even if it wasn't his football or basketball. <laughs> killer. Killer. He would always claim we were cheating and that, that things weren't fair. The game wasn't fair. And this is where Jonah is. Jonah is just like Ross, angry and ready to go home with the football. Okay? But then God asks this wonderful question in verse 4. That's a fabulous question. He asks this, do you do well to be angry? Do you have a good perspective? Are you in the right? That's what he's asking. And it's a question we should ask ourselves every time we feel anger burn up inside of us. Are we right? Is what we want the ultimate good? It helps us redirect our blame. Most often what we think we have, we're angry because we think something's wrong. And that wrong most often is not outside of us, it's inside of us. Famous Scottish preacher Robert Murray McShane. Beautiful name. Okay. He puts it well. He says, the seeds of all sins are in my heart. And perhaps all the more dangerously that I don't see them. The seeds of all sins are in my heart. And perhaps all the more dangerously I don't see them. Likely, I don't do well. Likely, I'm not right to be angry with God or with other people. Because the way I do things isn't right, isn't good, isn't best. My love is small and selfish, not large and selfless. If we're up to me, the guest invited to the eternal party that God throws, called heaven, would be a very small list of people I like and people like me. Just being honest. But that isn't God's way. God's love is much, 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 much larger. Do we see that? Do we feel that? Our anger is a failure of spiritual imagination, a failure to understand God's compassion in its full extent. I love this way. Eugene Peterson does this awesome story where he basically says, look, the way that we invite people is like a finger crooking, inviting people to come. The way that God invites people is like windmill arms. Windmill arms. Let me, let me quote what he says. We stand at our pulpits and our lecterns and we extend an index finger to suggest that people tidy up their morality, embellish their piety, and get the facts straight. And God is waving his windmill Jesus arms, calling all of us to grace and mercy and salvation. God, with his windmill Jesus arms, invites the least of these. The folks we can't stomach, the tragically uncool, the smelly, the difficult, the failures, the successes, the slobs, the neat freaks, the partiers, and the judgmental jerks. All of them are invited. God invites all these people, and he loves them, just like he loves us, even in our anger. Even in our anger. And God loves us with slobbering, face-licking, up, jumping up and down love. Do we get that? And if we're honest, that kind of love frustrates us and embarrasses us for God. So we say... But that's just who Jesus is, and those are the kind of people that Jesus likes to hang out with, right? He likes to hang out with the sinners and the Pharisees. He likes to hang out with the tax collectors and the prostitutes. 
people a lot like you and me in all our piety and all our impiety, in all our responsibility and all our irresponsibility. Jesus, God himself, literally, physically, and historically came down to the earth to become one of us. But where none of us deserves God's compassion, he did. Everything he did, everything his heart felt, was grace and mercy and patience and steadfast love that relents. So much so that he died on a cross to give those who believe the right to grace, the right to patience, the right to steadfast love. A love that's best translated, the word chesed is best translated by a children's storybook Bible. A never stopping, a never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. A never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking and always and forever love. And this love is to anyone and everyone and all people who believe that God's compassion on earth was named Jesus Christ. But how can we drive this point home in our lives, right? So, we've seen the Jesus connection, we've heard the gospel, but what does that mean for us? How can we believe, how can we truly deep down believe at a heart level that Jesus' kingdom is not just one big click? That Jesus' kingdom is full of transforming love and power that makes us good, even when we weren't good to begin with. I think Pastor Joe Novenson tells this wonderful story about one way, one way we can believe. A few years ago, Novenson felt the anger rising up within him, and he felt like quitting. He felt like quitting the ministry. And when he felt like this, he, he had figured out that this happens once in a while when you do ministry and try to love people and your agenda gets in the way. And so he had made a stopgap. And that stopgap was to go to South Carolina and visit his friend Robbie. Robbie was a butcher. Okay. Robbie was a butcher in the inner city of Columbia, South Carolina. Robbie was the kind of guy that befriended everybody. All the homeless and all the street people would come into his butcher shop and he would teach them how to be a butcher, give them a trade. And then he would also love people in such a way that they became, that a lot of them became to know Jesus. And as a result, Robbie was the kind of guy that was a groomsman in all these like fantastically wonderful weddings. Okay, as you can imagine. <clears throat> anyway, Novison gets down to Columbia, South Carolina, for a few weeks to help out in the butcher shop. Mostly, he's in the back doing doing bleaching. Okay, because I guess there's a lot of blood and there's a lot of white. Okay, anyway, that graphic detail aside. Um, Notices in the back, and all of a sudden, one day, a homeless woman named Eleanor comes in to show Robbie a few interesting pieces of trash. Literally. Pieces of trash. Okay? You could smell her before you could see her. She smelled like a bathroom. Feces, poop, urine, pee, all mixed together. It was disgusting, and made Joe Novison want to gag. So Robbie notices Joe Novison in the back, looking over at their conversation, and he says, Eleanor, you know what? Joe over there really needs a hug. <laughs> he desperately needs you to hug him. And Eleanor, ignoring Joe's wince and shrug and like backing away, goes over to him and says, oh, you poor dear, and windmills her arms, 